Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Thursday, March the 16th, and you're very welcome to the politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. This week, in the run-up to the traditional national holiday on St. Patrick's Day, the newspaper has been running a series exploring issues around the questions of national identity and national unity on the island of Ireland in the post-Brexit era. One of the contributors is novelist and essayist Colm Tobin, and he joined me on the line from New York to discuss his own modest proposal. Colm Tobin, it's it's more than 30 years now since you took a walk along the Irish border for, for that uh, wonderful book which you wrote. And it struck me having a look at it again today, how much that land, not the landscape, but how much the lives of the people along it have changed and how much that really is a result of us all living really in, uh, some politicians may disagree with this, but John Hume's world in the sort of blurring of national antagonisms which came with the arrival of the EU and then the decision to start talking and stop killing. I think it's also Jacques Delors' world and a world created by the European Union whereby by after 1992 the whole, the, the openness of, of the borders in Europe generally meant that the, that the sort of um, business of security on the Irish border for goods and services um, actually disappeared. And um, this obviously made a huge difference to certain smugglers. But it also meant that you could just drive freely from one side to the other without being stopped by the customs. And uh, then, of course, with the peace process, with, as you say, John Hume, then the next thing was then you could drive from one side to the other, or indeed ride your bicycle or walk from one side to the other without the security problems as the ceasefires um, took hold. So, yeah, the entire, and the British, and the Irish indeed, and the county councils got involved in rebuilding the bridges, in remaking the roads, in actually just just right along from, you know, the Leitrim Fermanagh border, right along, they, they actually made it look as though there was no border there at all. It is, and that's in my in my lifetime, adult lifetime. That's been a you know a hugely significant transformation, and and I think you you argue in your piece this week in the Irish Times that 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 we're at danger possibly of losing that. One of the positions we're in, oddly enough, for, for once, is a position of strength, which is to say, who is going to police the southern side of the border? Should Brexit come? Should a hard Brexit come in? And who's going to pay for it? Is the Irish taxpayer going to pay for it? Are we going to allow again the idea that that a hostile that the hostility will build up between customs officials, between the Gardaí and the locals on the southern side of the Irish border? Is this going to happen again? Because we can actually say, well, no, we're actually not going to do this. We're, we're in we're in a slightly we're in a slightly strong position uh, within Europe as being the only country which will have a land border um, with Britain 
um, when Britain leaves. So it, so, it, so it leaves in a position not only to say, as usual, to go to Brussels with our begging bowl, but to go to Brussels actually to say there's something we won't give you if you don't listen to what we have to say. That's a fantastic point, and it never it didn't really occur to me until you said it there, which is, you know, we have no self-interest in putting any resources at all into into reconstructing this 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 artificial construct for the benefit of British nationalists. I think it would cause immense difficulty in those counties for the guards um, if they had to start doing this again. I think it's the last thing they would want, and someone should talk to them about it and ask them how they feel about it. So, where do we go from here? We're at this point of inflection is too mild a word for it. We're at this point of of significant turbulence and and I suppose above all unpredictability ahead and there's a you know there's a, a, a strange rocky channel turbulent channel to be to be navigated or negotiated over the next two years or so with article fifty and the the high level negotiations with the EU. What should we, and I, I suppose first of all I mean we in Dublin, but also we, all of us on the, on the island of Ireland, go about dealing with this? I think we should ask um, Enda Kenny, as long as he lasts, and who replaces him, and Micheál Martin, to not mention a united Ireland again. Because it looks as though they're merely involved in this to cause further mischief and trouble. United Ireland is not on the table. It is not going to happen. Anyone who knows anything about the North knows it will not occur just stop talking about it because it sounds like just pure Irish mischief is the usual thing. Irish, Irish dreaminess about reuniting the territory. It's, not, it's just off the tape. There is, however, um, we did work really well in very difficult negotiations with the British government, operating as two sovereign governments, attempting to solve an intractable historical problem. This began with the Anglo-Irish Agreement with, with Gareth Fitzgerald. Um, well, it began with Charlie Hoy, I suppose, with the, with the famous teapot moment when she comes over and, and to Dublin at the beginning of Hoy's time in, in power. But it, but it really goes on through the Anglo-Irish Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, um, uh, the Dynasty Declaration, etc. In that, um, nobody is going to want this strange border this strange land border in the European Union. It, it's unpoliceable. Anyone who knows those roads and also sometimes the rivers themselves, which, which actually look like, um, you know, that you can't pass them. Everyone knows there are fords where you can pass. So the border, that, that border simply cannot be policed. And therefore, we have to start looking um, at another solution to this. And one possible solution to this is to say, that um, Northern Ireland remains uh, within the European Union. Um, it voted for this. Now, in order to do this, we have to A, stop talking about United Ireland, and B, stop not mention Scotland under any circumstances. Why? What we're trying to do, well, because we, I think we have to send the message out that what we're trying to do is actually solve a problem for Britain rather than create further headaches for Britain. In other words, we're going to have to convince Theresa May and our cabinet, that this would be in their interest to do this, and that it is not about the breakup of um, you know, England, Wales, and Scotland, but about actually solving the problem of what to do with the land border. And this would be to leave Northern Ireland as a, as a separate entity. Um, it would 
um, perhaps contained or, or, or be part of the United Kingdom in many, many ways. Its education system, it would be under the crown, the postal system, um, all the systems it already has uh, as part of Britain um, would remain, but it also would remain um, a member um, of the European Union. And um, so to that extent, I mean, people may say, well, it's very small, but it's, it, it would have three times the population of Luxembourg. But, but, but any, other, any other solution seems to me to bring really great impossibilities with it as to how that strained border of ours could ever be policed again. So we, therefore, we have to look at another solution. So, and, and so, so that's that's one of the options. That's the option that I'm proposing. But it would take a great deal of slow, careful diplomatic building up of trust between the Irish and British governments, so the two governments, the two sovereign governments, would present this to the European Union as an agreement they have made between themselves, um, so that it would really require, you know, uh, quite a lot of preparation, quite a lot of work. Um, but I, but I can't see another solution. That so I, I have lots of questions about that. But let me ask you one first. When you say I, I'm guessing you you don't want to be too prescriptive here. But when you say a separate entity, do you mean an independent nation state within the European Union? Ah, well, that's a very strong. I mean, there's no need. Uh, you know, I think that one of the great things about the peace process has been the way in which we fudge certain words and terms like putting um, guns beyond use or talking about parity of esteem. So I think you're spelling out something that I would think could be handled verbally much more subtly than that. Well, I know you have a great knowledge of Catalonia, so it strikes me that one of the, and I don't want to just throw obstacles in, in the way of this, this, this attractive idea, but one of the obstacles that, that, that we hear when it comes to finding creative new solutions to some of the problems around Northern Ireland and indeed possibly Scotland as well, within or without the EU, is, is, is the, the Spanish-Catalonian issue, which might be a block. Yes, I do. Yes, I do think that this is, this is a very serious matter and... Uh, but I, uh, I do think there are ways in which the rest of the European Union would, would um, in the case of Northern Ireland, as opposed to Scotland, be able to convince the Spaniards that this really was a very, very different thing. Uh, another question I would have is that the success of the process, which included the Good Friday Agreement and the the endless toing and froing and the fantastic amounts of energy and effort which were expended into negotiations and ceasefires and collapsing ceasefires and going back and getting other ceasefires was you had two uh, at the time very strong uh, deal-making politicians in London and in Dublin who were willing to devote the time and the, the negotiating skills which they clearly both had to this process. Um, we don't know who we're going to have in Dublin, um, but I look at London and I'm not convinced that we have that there now. Yeah, that. Um, but it, lo it looked so unlikely, um, certainly circa 19. Um, 84 that Mrs. Thatcher would sign an agreement like the Anglo-Irish agreement. So, you know, it's not an impossible idea. We're going to have a new Taoiseach. Uh, the new Taoiseach is going to have to really think very clearly about this. And um, the, the thing about Theresa May is she's not necessarily an ideologue. You know, I mean, she did support the Remain side. She's now dealing with the Brexit side. She strikes me as someone who makes deals 
um, rather than someone who has very fixed opinions. And she really hasn't um, considered the matter of, of, of Northern Ireland and its relationship, you know, it, and the border with the Republic. So that um, it isn't, it, it isn't, it's something that seems difficult, but, but all, all negotiations between the two sovereign governments always seemed difficult. Although, although one of the things that we hear, uh, the people who know these things predict that the, the apparatus of the British state, the apparatus of government, Whitehall and all the rest of it, is going to be deluged, snowed under uh, by the, the, the sheer demands and the paperwork and the bureaucracy of extricating itself from the European Union and all its works. Yeah, and and part of the bureaucracy of this, part of the pure headache of this, is going to be how do you deal with with a land border? Uh, so that I mean, it's not going to it's like even if we don't deal with it, even if we don't mention, even if we keep twittering on about um, uh, United Ireland and um, you know just um, keep our heads down, the British are going to have to really, really think about this, in re- and they're going to have to discuss it with the European Union as to how they deal with their land border with the European Union, and how they propose to deal, for example, with um, with um, two things: movement of people and movement of goods um, on on that land border. I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's going to be a problem for them as much as for us. Now you're you're framing this very much as a as a deal, I suppose, which could be done between London and Dublin. But what of the people of Northern Ireland themselves? It strikes me reading your piece, there 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 are faint echoes, only faint, but they are there. It seems to me there there were attempts, sometimes quite idealistic ones, way back in the 1970s and the early 1980s, to see whether there would be some possibility of carving out a space for Northern Ireland as an autonomous or independent entity in its own right as opposed to it just being the subject of this, this endless struggle between the two larger countries. Yeah, that, um, in other words, that you really have to have absolute agreement between the two sovereign governments that this is a solution. And then you have to um, have great numbers of um, people making absolutely clear to Northern Ireland that this does not involve a united Ireland. This does not involve any dilution of the, as it were, British identity of Northern Ireland. That, in other words, the Queen remains the, um, that, the, the that the crown remains in place, that, that all the systems um, of government remain in place, that the full idea of identity remains in place. Now, obviously, if Scotland is going to make moves, this 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 is going to help enormously in that it, within the archipelago. Um, that's instead of calling it the British Isles, the archipelago. You could have a number, um, perhaps even four, um, different what we might call nation states. Um, but certainly, if Scotland is going to go that way, from within Northern Ireland, there would have to be people who would have to see the advantages of Northern Ireland also becoming. Um, an independent um, entity um, in the same way as Scotland will be under the crown, I imagine. I don't think Nicola Sturgeon is talking about getting rid of the Queen or getting rid of this sort of constitutional relationship between the monarch and the parliament. Um, so that, that would be something that Northern Ireland could also do. But it is something that I think the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Department of Theatre has to be seriously thinking about. Uh, and the place to go, it seems to me, first is London, rather than starting to think about how this would pan out within Northern Ireland, 
the agreement would have to be made between the Irish and British governments in that this was something they both wanted and both wanted to present to Brussels or to the European Union as an agreement they, they were absolutely ready to make as part of the overall Brexit agreement. And of course, then um, they, the, the argument within Northern Ireland could begin um, almost in the same way, perhaps, as when Margaret Thatcher signed the Anglo-Irish agreement. She did it without consulting anybody. And it was then and only then that the argument began in Northern Ireland. And, and I think that that's an, that's, an, that's, an, that's an interesting example to look at. Finally, Colm, um, and more part to your optimism, but I mean, we started here talking about Jacques Delors and uh, that great European project, which which I certainly believe that, that, that this country and this island has benefited from hugely over the last uh, over the last few decades. But we're at a moment in time where that project is 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 threatened uh, more than it more than it has been in my lifetime by a rise in nativism and atavism a sort of a a, a swing ac- across Europe and in Britain as well against the I suppose the principles which which Delors stood for against that kind of backdrop do you think something like this which is in a way a kind of a reinvention of the European project for for the 21st century do you think it can get it could get wind behind it? No, um, I mean, I mean, I think that the Irish government is more just just looking at the really depressing remarks about from both um, Enda Kenny and Micheál Martin about a united Ireland, and just realizing that actually the the Irish side, the, the Republic of Ireland side, is much more likely just to moan and do its worst in this. Um, I mean, what I was trying to do was come up with another way of looking at it. I mean, a fresh way of looking at it, just just to wake people up to the fact that that this for us is likely to become a nightmare. If you live along Leitrim, um, along Monaghan, Cavan, Loud, there, there's a, a new relationship going to build up between the security forces and you um, if this happens. And this is something that, that we desperately don't want. But um, I, but But it would really require... Um, you know, it would really require somebody with the sort of energy and vision of Gareth Fitzgerald, who had those sort of connections in Europe and, the, and that sort of new, new way of thinking. And indeed, somebody like John Hume on the other side, perhaps even. But um, I, I don't see anybody like that at the moment in the politics of the Republic. So I'm, no, no, I'm, I'm really being, you know, I'm really being utopian. But I wouldn't say that um, I'm not pessimistic. Thanks to Colin Tobin for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember, you can find me on Twitter or you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.